This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. Hi, I'm Mike Bush. I'm Paul New. And I'm Colleen Sterling. Welcome to Ask the AMPs from AOPA. On Ask the AMPs, we take your toughest maintenance questions and attempt to answer them. So if you have a question, please reach out to us at podcasts at aopa.org. And if you like the show, make sure to follow or subscribe so you never miss an episode. And if you'd like to get on our email list for our monthly newsletter and maintenance stories, the easiest way to do that is to text the word SAVVY, S-A-V-V-Y, to 33777. And a little text bot will ask you for your email address and put you on the list. Text the word SAVVY, S-A-V-V-Y, to 33777 to put yourself on the list. Everybody got home from Oshkosh okay? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, I, got, I, I, I took the long way home. Yeah, thank you very much. <laughs> Paul uh, flew a Cirrus to uh, Air Venture. It wasn't his. He, he stole Unfortunately. It. <laughs> and he didn't um, steal it. And it was parked in the, in the display area. And uh, Paul needed, needed to get, get home on Sunday. And it turned out that the airplane could not be extracted from the display area until late Sunday night. So um, after much negotiation with the powers that be at EAA trying to figure out a way to levitate that airplane out of where it was stuck, uh, I wound up uh, uh, taking the long way home and, and, and dropping Paul off in, uh, in Jackson, Tennessee. And thank you again. Last year, you got me a ride to Oshkosh. And then on someone else's airplane coming home, this is becoming routine. Oh, but Some, the, you know the really the really good part of it, Paul paid for the gas. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> what a man! That's awesome. That's the least, yeah. and a twin, no less. Oh. And it was seven dollars and something a gallon. Yeah, too. and was, he didn't even. I mean, I didn't see any any facial expressions or anything. No, no grimacing or anything. I know you went home and cried afterwards, but at well, least I didn't bit. get to see it. I did wince a bit. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, the uh, my Cirrus is still down where I made the swap out with the other Cirrus, and I'm trying to. I'm still trying to figure out how to get there because I have a trip coming up next Wednesday, so I've got to get my airplane back. Oh my gosh, your logistics are making me dizzy. I mean, all <laughs> we did was get on a commercial flight to Chicago and drive up, and it was well, not eventful. Why isn't, why isn't Blake <clears throat> taking you down there? Well, that's see, that's the thing. Blake still has to. Uh, he has to change the oil in his Warrior, and then once that's done, the annual is finished. But he's got to have an instructor fly with him down there because he's not not signed off for that yet. Oh, he's not oh. signed. He, he yeah. can't. He's not. And he signed can't off find an instructor. 
solo cross country. <laughs> Aren't so, you an instructor, Paul? No, no, no Paul's no, no, not. I'm, He's resisted the urge. I'm, I've, that's, <laughs> I would say I'm smarter than that. Maybe I'm, I'm just, I don't know what it is, but yeah, uh, a little more self-preservation than to be an instructor. It, it, true to life, instructors that do it every day, bless them. I'm telling you, they're brave yeah. souls. Yeah. They have to fly with people like me and that, you know. So now we're just trying to find a, a pilot maybe that can fly fly the two of us down there and so I can get my airplane back. Well, well I've, been, I've, been, <laughs> I've been going to AirVenture every year for longer than I can remember. And uh, I think the, the weather this year was the best I can ever recall. Oh, it was awesome. Um, yeah. I have this little ritual every year right before uh, AirVenture starts that I, I say a prayer. Um, I'm praying for a big womp and coal front to come through AirVenture right before the show, clear out all the hot air and, and, and give us a week of good weather. And it finally and this worked. Week, my, this week, this year, my prayer was answered. Um, big womp and storm came through on Saturday about 6.30, took down tree limbs and power lines, flipped a couple airplanes. And when I, when I arrived at 10.30 the next morning, Sunday morning, it was absolutely glorious. Now, Paul was silly <laughs> enough to arrive Saturday. Saturday. He right, got there about, right what, 4.30. I, I arrived, I landed on the orange dot, runway 27, precisely at my assigned 4.15 arrival time, which would not have happened had I not had to vector around the storms. Had I vectored around the storms, I would have been way off my time. But somehow that, that I had to go all around Chicago and everything. But I landed and I took a picture because it's not every day that you get to taxi up to Boeing Square and they hook a, a toe on you. And, you know, so I rode on the wing like I was somebody. There wasn't anybody there to see me. But yeah. you know, I, I still, everybody was running away from the storm. <laughs> everybody, <laughs> just about the time we got the airplane tied down at the display area, it, it, here it came. It just crashed. It was something else. Where were you when it came through? Were you still on the grounds or did you get under the I just got into the house when the oh, worst good. of it hit. I walked in the house, turned on the lights, and sat down and thought, this is really nice. <laughs> I thought you were going to say you turned on the lights and then the lights went off or something. No, but, no, yeah. I, I didn't lose power, unlike an awful lot of folks in Oshkosh. Yeah. I lost a lot of power. And then he did the bachelor thing and went out and got himself a pizza. That's, what, that's exactly <laughs> what I did. He sat around in his underwear <laughs> eating pizza. <laughs> Our first question is from Jay, who's trying to get one cylinder to behave. Go ahead. Hey, thanks, guys. I really love the program. I'm an old-time Car Talk listener, and I really love this updated version. <laughs> oh, yeah. So we're too. click, clack, and clunk. <laughs> clunk. <laughs> well, I, I fly an experimental canard, and it's a Lycoming IL-540, the 260 horsepower. I love the plane, and I've, I've flown it every single hour of this uh, that it, on its existence. And I will say I'm also a committed uh, choir boy in the Church of Lean of Peak. <laughs> um, I'm also a firm believer. Before. I'm a firm believer in the virtues of always fixing the cheapest thing first. Also, typically, uh, uh, my issue is about CHTs, and typically, I like to see the CHT in cruise between 340 to 390. That's about the range. I figure anything in between there is perfectly fine. It it goes above 400 on climb. I don't get too worried about that. So once I get up into lean, uh, up into cruise, I do a, a lean, a big mixture pole, as they say. Uh, and I lean for cruise to get lean a peak. Cylinder five drops lean first, and it's quite a while before the other cylinders catch up. Mm. So it is the leanest cylinder. 
And as a practical matter, cylinder four is the richest, so it's the last one to peak. In and of itself, it's not a big deal. There's going to be a spread between them. It has to be. But in this case, cylinder five is the outlier. So it, le it leans, it peaks so much earlier than the others. So I thought maybe it was an induction leak. I changed the gasket out. I checked the, the rubber hose that connects it to the induction sump. The works, still same, same. So I started looking at the anatomy of the injectors, thinking that perhaps there's a sizing issue or I can change the size of the injector to make that cylinder a little more rich. And that's kind of where I'm at. I, I, uh, I thought I was brilliant in figuring to just swap the injectors between the leanest and the richest. But maybe I need an education in the actual anatomy of an injector. The, the injectors on this engine are a, a, a screw-in fitting. It screws into the top of the cylinder. Mm -hmm. And then inside that fitting is a brass trumpet-shaped right. tube. Mm -hmm. A little yeah. insert. So what I, what I thought was maybe it's just the different sizing of that brass tube, but that the screw-in fitting is, is the same from one injector to the next. But, so may, but maybe I have that wrong. The tube is what gives you the, the fuel flow inside the injector. When you swapped them, did you see a change in... No, not a bit. Well, so, so then I went online, and there's an aftermarket company that makes different size... Are they tubes? Is that what you call them? Uh, the little brass well, tubes? Restrictors, I it, guess? It's, an, it's, a, it's, an, it's a calibrated orifice that's inside of the injector body. Yeah, yeah. it looks like nothing but a, a long trumpet. That's sure. it. Yeah. yeah, so I, I bought the largest one they had, which in this mm -hmm. case was 0.028. Mm -hmm. And I, I swapped that one into the, the fitting that was screwed into the top of the cylinder, and there was no change. So I'm sort of at a loss. If there, there's no other way for me to affect the rich or, or leanness of this particular cylinder, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to figure out why I'm, why I'm banging my head against the wall and not seeing any results. One thing that I think might be worth ruling out before, before you drive yourself crazy with this, is to make sure that the that, that this number five cylinder doesn't have inadequate valve lift on one of the valves. I'm I'm just thinking that if you had a you know a worn cam lobe or something affecting this cylinder, that all the tweaking of the conjecture in the world is not going to cure that problem. I'm, I'm not saying that that's a problem, but I think it's something that you need to rule out. Make sure that the that the valve action that cylinder is 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 as great as it is in the in the in the other five cylinders. That it, it's breathing like the other cylinders. Right. So if the yeah. if the if the if if the lift were inadequate, then right. it wouldn't be getting as much fuel air mixture as it should. So I'm all for uh, you know doing fun things and having more <laughs> excuses to go flying. I get in trouble now. So keep in mind. If I make suggestions, they may be really dumb suggestions. So, you know, think think safety. and You need a Paul filter, is what he's saying. <laughs> Welcome Mike to the Colleen, experimental world. Yeah, yeah. Mike, Mike and Colleen sometimes have to have to rein me in because I don't really think through these all the time. But this one is, is pretty good. So you've done the gammy lean test. But I would suggest an in-flight uh, manifold leak test, hmm. which is a really fun thing to do once in a while. And it will show things that you cannot duplicate on the ground. It's a real simple test. You go up to five or 6,000 feet where the ambient air pressure is about the same as your uh, wide open throttle air pressure. Do it at whatever power setting you want, rich of peak, let all the EGT stabilize, and then lower the manifold pressure about seven or eight inches and monitor which EGTs go up and which go down 
And if you have one that's an outlier, like five go up and one goes down, more than likely you're going to have a different leak or you're going to have a leak on that one cylinder because the you've just changed the differential pressure between the induction system and the ambient. So if there's a leak, there will be air that moves from ambient to your induction system. And that won't happen if there's not a leak. So you can find an outlier that way. I don't know that that's what you have. I'm just suggesting that's something fun to do next time you go flying. <laughs> no, that would be a useful data point. It hadn't occurred to me. Yeah, it's way better. A- Last month, I suggested somebody take off on one magneto, which was a really bad idea, but people do it accidentally all the time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Is there anything about the induction system on this engine that suggests number five might have a longer run or more twists in it? I'm not familiar with this. Induction. Does this engine have the uh, overhead induction pipes? No, they go through the bottom. Go through sump. the plenum in the bottom? Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. They're usually very balanced on the Lycoming. Right. That's yeah. what I'd heard. Have you pressurized the induction system and gone over it with soapy water and stuff? I have not. Because aren't there potential leaks on the Lycoming Is it where where they swedge into the into the? Uh, yeah, the either he has the swedged ones uh, with the O-rings or, uh, well, he would have the swedged ones, yeah, with the O-rings or the connector hoses. Sort of he like said it, he has the hoses, he said. Yeah, oh, yeah I did. Okay, yeah. And I checked those hoses, uh, replaced okay. the clamps, replaced those hoses. Yeah, it's a really easy thing to pressurize the induction system. You don't need to pressurize very much. It's a couple of inches above ambient. Um, easy way to do that is to is to pump air into a cylinder with the intake valve open and uh, and then go over it with uh, with soapy water and see if it's if it's blowing bubbles anyplace. That makes sense. Is it possible that it's anything other than an induction leak or an induction problem? Well, well you know, lifter, as I said, it could yeah. it could be a, val- a a valve lift problem. Yeah, we hope it isn't. Yeah, we'd rather find an induction that, leak. That, that's insp- expensive. Fix but, the cheapest thing first. Yep. Yep. All right, well, that's helpful information. Even better than that, instead of fixing the cheapest things first, is to go look, do some good troubleshooting because the cheapest thing is still expensive if you're just doing a whole bunch of cheap things. Check your valve lift, and you can run a borescope down in the oil filler and take a look at the cam. That'll give you a good idea if the cam lobes are in good shape. If one's bad, bad enough to cause you a problem, you can see it. And an in-flight induction leak test, uh, some good gammy test will give you some points. Did you take a look at the injectors? Are there any staining on the injectors? No, I I did take the one injector out and soaked it in Mac for a, an hour or two and then blew it clean mm-hmm. and it's appeared fine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, uh, this is a non-turboed, right? That's correct. Yeah. So about the only thing you get from those is the screens get a little dirty so they can't suck a little air in. Cause it's not a, it's not a spray. It's not a mist of Avgas. It's an aerated stream. So it has to have some air. Jay must live in the state where where, where they sell yeah, MEK. Sell, sell MEK. We can't get MEK here in California. I use hobbies. No kidding. Yeah. <laughs> oh, you can get it at Home Depot here. Oh, you're killing us. <laughs> Our Home Depot switched to a, some sort of lookalike. Uh, MEK substitute. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. It just doesn't smell the same. Yeah, we we, <laughs> we we have to we have to fly to Las Vegas to get our MEK. True, true. Well, what an excuse to Sneak go to Las back. Vegas. One one excuse is as good as another, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that's that's a good one. 
Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's a uh, that's a useful list. Of th- I wrote some down. There's a useful list of some tests I can do. It doesn't cost me hardly nothing but my time. So I will right. uh, I will give those a check. I'm interested that I could take the the filler tube off and take a look at my cam. Hadn't occurred to me until you just mentioned it to the earlier caller. You, that's a useful piece of information. You can't do that with many Lycomings. You've apparently yeah. you've got if, one that if it the works oil filler is is in the on back. The top. At the, at the, in Mine's the, on the top center. Oh yeah, you're good. You yeah. Oh, that's great news. I never heard that before. Yeah. That that's a piece of information that's really put put my mind at ease now that I can look it's, at it. It's right. really helpful during a pre-buy. Yeah. It's big information. That's great. Thanks, guys. Yeah. Well, good. I appreciate the call, Jay. Yep. Thanks for calling. And thanks again for all your help. Yeah, okay. Let good us luck. Know how it goes. Yeah. We'll do. Let us know. Take care. Our next question is from Gary. He wants to take care of his prop. Go ahead, Gary. Hey, guys. How are y'all today? Love your show. Look at you all the time. Watch y'all all the time. Uh, even been to Oshkosh and listened to Mike a couple of times. Unfortunately, I don't get to go this year whenever y'all are on the live stream. Wish I would. I actually have a couple of questions for you today, so I'll ambush you with one. But, uh, <laughs> but not, not to worry. It's right up your alley. Uh, okay. But I'm a CFI. And uh, one of my airplanes is a Beechcraft Sierra C model with a constant speed prop. And every now and then I'll get a student come in or someone for a flight review and they have a constant speed prop. Well, about a year ago, maybe not quite, sometime last year, y'all did a show and y'all were talking about how many times you should cycle the prop. And it kind of came down with you do it too many times. It's really not all that good for the engine. I mean, you can just feel how rough it gets on it. So one of the things that I teach people whenever they come to me for a flight review, when you want to get best glide, you pull that prop back when that engine dies. So I'll pull the prop engine back to an idle. Then I'll pull the prop back to get a best glide. My question is, am I doing anything negative to that engine when I when I do this? This is only in flight, right? This is only in flight. Yeah, yeah you're pulling it back to idle, but but that's part of being a CFI. Well, I can yeah. tell you, it's way better than pulling the mixture knob out like a flight school around yeah. here did about 30 years oh. ago. And more than once, the mixture cable came all the way out. Anyway, the, oh, the, really? the, the short answer to Gary's question is that, that pulling the, the, the prop back to get best glide is, is fine. It doesn't hurt anything. And it's a good lesson. <laughs> it's very important. Well, yeah. good, you know, when I do my first run-up of the day, I, I'm going to run up one time and one time only. And I don't look at the different gauges. I kind of <clears> feel with the seat of my pants. You know, you could tell what's going on with the airplane. You know, you, mm-hmm. you're, you're losing a little oil pressure because you feel exactly what the prop is doing. Uh, so I just wanted to make sure I wasn't doing this, you know, to the detriment of my engine and everybody else's whenever I do a flight review for them. So I appreciate that. Uh, my next question has to do with leaning and one of y'all's uh-huh. favorite subjects. And I lean religiously. When I start my airplane, the first thing that I reach for is going to be that red knob. And I'm leaning on the ground through all phases of flight, except for, for takeoff and climb out mm-hmm. initially, mm-hmm. obviously. Question is, which which religion <laughs> Well, what is that? The the Mike Bush School of Leaning? That's the Church of Mike. Yeah, Yeah, the Church of Mike. Uh, And I get a lot of looks, you know, from from new students, especially from old guys who come to me, and I and I start preaching this leaning thing. But but most of all, they're kind of coming around. Uh, But my engine book, and if my Sierra's got a Lycoming IO three sixty A one B six in it, and Lycoming says to lean to peak on that engine. 
And, it, you know, I've got an EDM 700, and it's pretty easy to do that. And I love to lean to peak or a little bit lean of peak. You know, I'll, I'll run 10 degrees lean of peak sometime. Uh, I just want to make sure that at zero, at peak, that I'm not doing anything detrimental to that engine either. Now, I'm not leaning anywhere on the rich side. I've got gammy injectors in the airplane. So, you know, everything's going to be pretty close to being balanced. I've got friends that'll, that'll sometimes they, they lean 25 degrees rich, some of them 50 degrees rich. And I try to talk them out of doing that. I'm mostly going to lean at zero or a little bit more than zero. Thoughts on that, please. Leaning to to PGGT is fine as long as you're not pulling too much power. Yeah, uh, well, Lycoming says 75% or less. You know, so, so I'm running RPMs at 2,400 whenever I do that, and, and that's 75% on that engine. So uh, I'm definitely, you know, not pulling too much power, and that's lit altitude as well. And what do your cylinder head temperatures look like? The number two is always the hottest. It's going to run after I'm in cruise, uh, 340, 350. The rest uh-huh. of them be cooler. Cool. You know? yeah. Yeah, cl- climb out, you know, it'll tend, especially this, this heat wave we're having here in Louisiana right now. Uh, I've knocked on the door 400 in that number two a couple of times, but I, I never let it get there. But you're not you're not climbing at peak EGT. You're yeah. doing this at cruise, right? No, no, exactly. Yeah. 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 I, you know, I, oh. I, I'm, I'm wetting the cylinders whenever I'm climbing. Uh, with those <laughs> cylinder head temperatures, I wouldn't have any concern about it. Yeah. I flew my Twin Comanche, which has a, a IO320. Well, I did two of a them. Whole, I had two of Hopefully them. Hopefully yeah. two, That's yeah. True. yeah two, most of the time. You always have to have a spare. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Redundancy. And I flew it at, at peak most of the time. Okay. Well, well good. Did Very great. good. Yeah, I had a... a PA-2220 with an 0320 in it. I, I love that airplane, but actually coming back from Oshkosh to Louisiana, my wife was sitting next to me and looked over at me and said, this is my last trip till you get something bigger. Oh, <laughs> you know, that, that geez, airplane is wonderful. And, and now there's she laid here. down the law. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Not, not, not everybody can say their wife said, get an airplane. You know, yeah, I was that's true. Say. first thing I'm going to do is go get an airplane. Did you do something <laughs> yeah. special for her? You say chose, yes, dear. She <laughs> goes <laughs> well. Yeah. Helen looks at me when she wants to go buy something new and she, you know, she's like, you can't say anything. You have an airplane, and she goes and gets whatever she wants. And yeah, I'm okay with I've, that. I've heard that more than once. It is, you know, my wife's philosophy: as long as I say yes, then everything's going to be fine. Oh, you're good. <laughs> I always, I tell my husband he can buy whatever airplanes he wants, as long as I have as many as he does, <laughs> or more. Yes. No. Nah, well. <laughs> All right. Thank you guys so much. Thanks. Bye bye. Bye bye. Our next question is from Eric, who's wondering what triggers an overhaul. Go ahead, Eric. Oh, well, so much. Thank you so much, Colleen, and thank you guys for the show. I'm a huge, huge fan. I look forward to the release of each one. So, yeah, I've been. Um, I'm a about a year a year into ownership of a 1976 Piper Lance. I've been uploading all my engine data to Savvy, which has been amazing for no other reason just the graphene alone. I love that data side of it. Uh, but one thing that started to come up is I'm at about 1950 hours, huge proponent of your whole model, Mike. And so I'm now starting to look at this. I'm going into annual next week. And it, I just kind of thought that if you replace it, you know, if you do a rebuild of 2000 hours, then it's okay. You go through, you know, items one through 72 or whatever it is. If I, or I'm sorry, at the TBO. So if I now want to go, you know, if my engine's still running great, engine data looks good. 
what do I need to do at 2000 and beyond 2000 to uh, make sure that I'm not putting anyone in jeopardy? All the same stuff you've been doing. Yeah. 2000 Pretty is much. a number. It's this, just a number. There's, there's not like a, a rope you have to step over or a fence you have to climb. You, you need to do a lot of things. Certainly the minute that you decide that you are going to ignore TBO, which is Sounds what I've like been recommending <laughs> for a long time, you, you, you pretty much obligate yourself to, to doing a conscientious job of, of uh, condition monitoring so that you do know when, you know when the engine starts talking that you're, you're listening. Probably the two most important tools that we have for condition monitoring our oil filter inspection that tells us about what's going on in the bottom end and a borescope inspection that tells us what's going on in the top end. There are other subordinate tools. We like to do spectrographic oil analysis, uh, although it's not nearly as important as, as filter inspection. We, we have to do compression checks, even though it's sort of a garbage check and borescope is a better indicator of top end condition, but the regulations require that we do compression tests. So, and we keep track of things like, like what's happening to oil consumption and so on. But basically you just have to do all of that on a conscientious basis, take good notes. This is the world's worst time to overhaul an engine. <laughs> yeah. yeah, Because, you know, if you decide to overhaul an engine now, you're you're going to be on the ground for six months. And that's kind of if you're lucky. And both Continental and Lycoming give delivery estimates that they never, ever meet. They constantly are slipping those things and saying, oh, well, we had some more supply chain issues. But but both of the manufacturers are, are grotesquely behind, in both in terms of shipping engines and, and, and shipping critical parts that are needed for field shops who, who overhaul engines. So this is a really good time not to overhaul if you can possibly avoid it. And so, you know, I, I've always said it's a crime to euthanize an engine for no good reason, but, but that's truer now than it's ever been because the, the, the downtime involved in, in, in overhauling or replacing an engine is so terrible. A couple of things, too, you want to consider. If you go past TBO, before you go into annual, ask your IA if that's a problem. Because some IAs are being very particular, decided they're not going to sign off an annual if you're past TF, TBO. I, I'm not sure what their real basis is for that, but it's something to be uh, careful of. And the things that Mike has mentioned are things that, since we have other people that are listening, you want to be doing all the time. You want to be watching the oil filter and all that. So when you pour oil in, is it at, on the top of the engine on the left side or more towards the right rear of the engine? It's on the top toward the front left. Okay. So at the next annual inspection, just for once in a while, if you want to, you can remove the little short plastic standpipe that that filler cap is on and put a little borescope in there and you can see the entire camshaft and all the lifters. Camshafts and lifters aren't gonna make the airplane fall out of the sky, but it was really cool to see what they look like because it'd give you an idea of the longevity of 
that particular part of the engine. And that's, you can't see it on a Lycoming without pulling cylinders unless you do this. And it's, you're not gonna find something broken, but you'll be able to actually have a really good look and tell, well, you know, we've got some spalding here or not there. It's a really good way to monitor the condition of that part. You know, when I when I purchased the plane, uh, I did a bore, I had a borescope done that was pitting on one of the lifters. But then, since I started using CamGuard, I have not seen any decrease in performance, any metal in the filter, anything of the sorts. So at this point, I'm like, everything looks great, but with the pitted lifter, I'm kind of going, okay, should I should I be more aggressive looking at an overhaul? No. No, I mean, everything is, it, in, instead of saying, oh, it's going to be an overhaul right away, we can do this on condition. We can look at it. We can determine if we need to do something. So the metal that comes off the lifters, uh, you're not always going to catch in the filter. Uh, often you do, unless it comes off in, you know, really slow, small amounts. But looking at the cam and the lifters tells you everything you need to know. So if you're concerned about it, you can have a look, take some photos, document the condition, put those away, and two or three hundred hours later, do it again. Okay. Okay. Well, that but really if, helps. And that was, yeah. But if that if that pitting is there, it's still there. And yeah, it's still there. It, it doesn't it go It will away. get worse. Yeah, <laughs> unfortunately. It's not self-healing. You know. But it's, it's important to understand that cam and lifter problems, while they can be extremely expensive, particularly... Uh, if we're talking about a Lycoming engine where you can't replace lifters without splitting the case, they're not going to make you fall out of the sky. If a cam lobe starts coming apart, there'll be a slow decrease in performance. Uh, since you obviously watch your engine monitor data very carefully, uh, if it gets pretty serious, you'll see the discrepancy in, in, uh, in the cylinder involved in your engine monitor data. Uh, eventually, you'll start seeing ferrous metal show up in the oil filter. But this is n not something you have to worry about any sort of a catastrophic event happening. I characterize cam and lifter problems as not safety of flight items, but safety of wallet items. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, looking, borescoping the camshaft is all about planning purposes, giving you an idea of how long what it's going to gonna be yeah. Yeah, before it, the performance starts getting down to the point where you have other issues. So it, it all just adds in. And it's certainly, I don't know that it's something you need to do every year, but since you, you say you already had it done, and if it looked okay, then you're probably good for quite a while. Well, yeah, and there was some bad pitting on one of the lifters and, you know, but overall my engine performance is still, still solid. I'm just wondering what would I see in the engine? You know, what type of, you know, would it be compression? Would it be temperatures? What would I see as that cam lobe is, is wearing off. Well, probably the most obvious thing that the th that you would see if 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 you do you do you borescope the cylinders? Um, I haven't yet. Okay. Well, that's a very good thing to to start out with. And one of the things that we like to see you do is while you're borescoping the cylinders to rotate the propeller so you can watch the valves opening and closing, and that'll give you a real good idea of, of several things. First of all. If there's a worn cam lobe and one of the valves isn't opening as far as it should, it will become obvious when you look at it under the bore scope that the that the the valve action is not as as great as it is in the other cylinders. Also, when the valve 
closes as it settles into the seat, the amount of sidestep that you see in the valve as it goes into the seat gives you an idea of how worn your, your valve guides are. So you can tell an awful lot about the condition of valves by uh, and the valve train in general by, uh, by inspecting with a bore scope while you're rotating the prop and actuating the valves, opening them, closing them. Most people, when they do a bore scope inspection with the piston at bottom dead center, never move anything. But but you can learn a lot by 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 rocking the prop back and forth and watching the valves open and close. Okay, perfect. Okay, so I guess then, so to confirm, when when an overhaul is done, it's just of the engine. It's not of any of the accessories. Well, some accessories are included. Yeah, you because know, that's what I'm wondering. Like, if I'm not going to overhaul at two thousand. Sure. Should so, I do something else at 2000? Yeah, like that D-mag you're mentioning. That's that's definitely a single point of failure in your engine, and you want to stay on a schedule of uh, recurring maintenance with that. The inspection periods on that should be observed. Yeah, mags mags should go through a, a through a a 500 hour teardown inspection, uh, what we call an IRAN. Especially that mag. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and it needs to be someone that really understands that magneto. It's the dual mags are a special case. Mm-hmm. Okay, very good to know. Then off to off to ping ping some other uh, airport friends and see if I can find some of that that they recommend. So, okay, I appreciate you guys. It's been hugely beneficial. Thank you so much, and uh, I love the show. Keep it up. And glad you called. Get as many hours out of that engine as you can. That's right. Squeeze that lemon. Yeah. Squeeze that. Lemon. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't mean it that way. <laughs> Okay. Well, all right. Well, thanks for the question, Eric. We really appreciate your call. Definitely. Take care. Yep. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Our next question is from Scott, who doesn't believe everything he reads online. Go ahead, Scott. <laughs> hey, guys. Thanks for uh, having me on. So I was going through a certain social media site, in which I now use just for aviation stuff, and one of the groups, somebody had posted about how their airplane, the starter was bad and they were trying to get someplace and they had it all set up to hand prop. And then they had the unlucky lottery ticket of having an FAA inspector show up. <laughs> you know, <laughs> the question then became, what's, is it legal to operate with that particular piece of equipment inoperative? And then it delved into well, what can actually be an operative on the airplane and still be airworthy? So the discussion ensued, and I, I think you're going to find this next part very shocking, and I hope you're sitting down. <laughs> the internet could not agree. No. <laughs> I know. It was really shocking. But it came down to, and I know there'd be some differences depending on, you know, were you experimental experimental amateur built, CAR3, part, you know, anything like that. No. What is a good baseline for somebody to decide, I have something that's inoperative. Is it okay to fly that way? I got this one. Yeah. Uh, all <laughs> Mike's over. all over this. I've been Mike locked all and loaded this for this one. Yeah. <laughs> well, first of all, there's the theoretical aspect of this, and then there's the the practical aspect of this. The practical aspect of this is that when the FAA inspector comes over and sees you hand propping your airplane and says, what are you doing? What you don't say is, I've got a dead starter and I'm hand propping the airplane to get home. <laughs> what, you do, what you do say is, well, the airplane wouldn't start and I assume it's a dead battery. Uh, so I'm hand propping the airplane. The theoretical part 
comes from a regulation called 91213D, which talks about what inoperative equipment is permissible to fly with. It's a complicated regulation. Because it's in Part 91, it applies to everybody, whether, whether you're flying an experimental or a certificated airplane, doesn't matter. Uh, Part 91 applies to everybody. And it basically, if you read through it, and it's fairly long regulation, has a, uh, it's kind of a, a flowchart that tells you all the questions you have to ask yourself to make a decision as to whether the airplane can be flown with a particular piece of uh, inoperative equipment, inoperative instruments, whatever. So, for example, in order to be able to fly with a piece of inoperative equipment, that equipment must not be part of the original certification basis of the aircraft. It must not be explicitly required by 91205, I think it is, which is the thing that says what equipment is necessary for day VFR, night VFR, day IFR, etc. And it not, must not be on the, the list of required equipment from the manufacturer for Part 23 airplanes. It, it's, it's what's called a KOEL, kinds of equipment list, uh, that, that says what equipment must be working for day VFR, night VFR, uh, day IFR, night IFR. And finally, it must not, the, the fact that it's inoperative must not present a hazard to flight, which is a subjective standard. And if it, if it passes all those tests, then it's okay to fly with the inoperative. I'm pretty sure that the starter was part of the certification basis of the airplane. So I, the, I, in, I looked at the TCDS for the Aronka. It's one for all of them, um, for the, all the Satabrios, and it looked like it was optional equipment, which I was kind of surprised on. It, really? It, it listed it in the notes, and it talked about what weight and balance change would occur if that starter were added. Oh, fascinating. Is that possible that it, it wasn't? It's possible. Yeah. Because it's so old, maybe? Yeah. It's sure. So that would imply, at least that that, that part of your uh, checklist here would imply that it meets that criteria, but it might still be on the KOEL. Well, there's not going to be a KOEL for Satabria because it's too old. Oh, okay. Well. There'll they'll be probably a list of required equipment somewhere in the POH someplace. Yeah, so my conclusion based on that, if I read the uh, TCDS right, would be that it's not required and he was legal to do that. Right, but that's not a generic answer. That's that that's a procedural answer. Yes. Look at the yeah. TCDS right. and try to determine whether the equipment is is required as, as part of the certification basis of the airplane. You know, it, it, like I said, it's a complicated regulation. It's, it's in Part 91. Pilots are supposed to be able to figure it out because part 91 is addressed to pilots, not addressed to mechanics. But it's not, you know, there aren't a whole lot of owners that even would know how to look up a TCDS. So it's a difficult regulation to, to, to comply with. Yeah, and it's kind of convoluted too. I mean, it's down, buried down in the notes after each model is addressed and it talks about all the other stings, uh, all the other equipment that could be installed. You know, and, and if, you, if you did hand prop the airplane and fly home and then there was an FAA inspector waiting at the other end for to ramp check you, then you'd say, well, uh, it must have gone, must have gone <laughs> bad in flight. It wasn't yeah. that way when I took off, you know. So. Yeah. so even though if, let's 
So this starter's obviously a, an optional piece of equipment. Doesn't have to be working for flight. Could he not just put a placard on the panel somewhere and tell the FAA guy, I've placarded it as inoperative and fly as long as he wants to that way? Yeah, it's supposed to be disabled and placarded. And uh, you, I, don't know I how suppose you, would... you could argue that it disabled itself or, <laughs> yeah, or maybe you could pull the breaker and put a tie wrapper out of it. Yeah, but I mean, he could have done that would have been just as legal. But I think it would be just better to say, hey, it, <laughs> right. it, was, it was working when I took off, you know. So did any of the Internet sources come close to what we're concluding? <laughs> oh, <laughs> Not yeah. Not that I and care. Immediately <laughs> someone saying, oh, you don't know what you're talking about, you know, just shut yeah. your computer off. You know, like it. Right. <laughs> most Internet conversations are not the most well-balanced, we'll say. But I was just trying to think of, you know, what's a good thumbnail for somebody that has an airplane where something isn't working and needs to get back or, you know, it doesn't yeah. even, you know, can't get it fixed or for a while, how do they know they're safe to and legal to operate? Actually, I, I did a, a webinar that's on, on our YouTube channel. You could Google called, is my airplane too broken to fly? And, uh, and, it, and it kind of walks through this whole 91213D process. But it, it sounds, it sounds like as usual, Colleen is the one that actually studied. <laughs> as <laughs> usual. At, <laughs> looked at your TCDS and came up with the with the right answer. So well, I couldn't remember the KOEL and the inoperative equipment list, but I did remember that if it's in the original certification basis for the aircraft, then it has to be operating yeah. to like be gas legal. tanks, right? Yeah. And the yeah. other the other, the other thing it has it you have to look at, at ninety one two hundred five, which is what the part ninety one required equipment for different kinds of stuff is. Yeah. Very I mean, cool. big airliners are using lists like this all the time when they're sitting at the gate and all the passengers are waiting to go and somebody comes well, in. Well, you see, that, you know, all, they, ADL, they, get, yeah. they get minimum equipment lists and they get they're approved. Uh, and, and, but the FAA and its infinite wisdom won't, won't offer, a, won't issue an MEL for Part 91 airplane. Ask me how I know. I tried <laughs> for my airplane and, and they basically laughed me out of the office. Uh, they said, "Oh, we we don't we don't we don't do MELs for for Part ninety one airplanes." So that's why ninety one two thirteen D exists. It's, it's it's sort of to provide a kind of a procedural algorithmic MEL for a us poor little man's guys. MEL, yeah. us little guys, yeah. Well, that was a great question, Scott, and I particularly love that you don't believe what you see on the internet. I wish more people <laughs> use that wisdom. <laughs> Kudos to hey, you. <laughs> be careful. This podcast is going to be on the internet. Soon. That, that's yeah, a quote that's from. Right. That's a quote from Abraham Lincoln. Not everything you see on the internet is true. <laughs> 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 so, thank you very much for calling. <laughs> all right. Thank you. I appreciate it. See you, Scott. Bye. Our next question is from Toby, is going to uh, educate us all on pressurization issues. How are you doing, Toby? Doing well, thank you. Thank you guys for having me on. I appreciate it. So I um, own a 1977 tip tank model Cessna 414. I have owned that airplane for over 12 years now. And in that time, I've had my fair share of pressurization issues, as I think many people with this type of airplane have. And so I wanted to discuss kind of the troubleshooting process with you today and maybe throw out a, a kind of a headliner here, which is if you ask a mechanic 
if you just come up to a mechanic and say, hey, my 414 has pressurization issues, the pressurization is weak, then the mechanic will say, okay, let's hook up a pressurization cart and spray some soap on the fuselage and see where your leak is. And blow bubbles. <laughs> It'll yeah. blow bubbles, exactly. Yes, yes, that's that's the point of the soap. It's, yeah, exactly. It's the, it's the Lawrence Welk show. <laughs> Tiny <Sorry>. bubbles. <laughs> Tiny bubbles. No. <laughs> Because we went off the rail there. Uh-huh. And the, there's a certain issue with that, which I found out over the years through, um, I, let's say I've paid my tuition for that lesson, um, which is, I don't know if you remember the TV show House MD. Um, House actually hates full body scans. And the reason why House <laughs> hates full body scans is because they reveal always some minor flaw that they're going to go chase up, which is actually not what's causing the problem. And I've I've discovered over the years that the pressurization cart and the soap on the fuselage is exactly that. Great comparison. <laughs> yeah, that is, that is a good comparison. So the 420, 421, 414, all of those, and we were talking about it earlier, there's a lot of stuff that goes into that. It's interesting we had a 210 that just showed up today and we hooked up the pressure cart. As a matter of fact, I got a text a few minutes ago asking if they could run the pressure cart and uh, it was decided that it was way too, <laughs> way too noisy. So, <laughs> so for the apparently you guys wouldn't be able to hear me for the podcast for the, yeah. for the pump. On a, on a 210, you do need to go to a pressure cart first because there isn't anything involved. We have, we're just siphoning off the manifold pressure and it pumps right into the cabin. It's like dirt simple. Take the cowling off, it's connected, that part's done. But on your on your twin Cessna, there's a whole lot going on. You've got a lot of valves, you have two sources, you have a heater that's forward of the false firewall. And what we've discovered is that if you've got a problem with pressurization and it's a leak, meaning something on the cabin side, if it's bubbles, you're not worried about it. You're worried about something that's messing up your hairdo. You know, if it if it's not messing up your do, it's not enough of a leak to worry about. But, <laughs> exactly, because if I'm going to complain to an AMP, I'm going to be missing like a P- one psi, one and a yeah. half psi on pressurization. Yeah, and that's going to be a big leak. But now on the pressure side, I don't know. Mike Mike had some thoughts on that earlier. I don't do much on twin Cessnas. Yeah, well, uh, you know, as, first of all, for for those of you listening who, who don't have a pressurized airplane, maybe we should explain a little of the basics of how pressurized airplanes work. But basically, the engine or engines which are turbocharged in, in these airplanes provide pressure into the cabin. And then there's an outflow valve that is connected to a regulator that leaks the excess pressure out of the cabin in order to get the cabin pressure to what it's supposed to be. So the the system has basically an inflow side, which provides stuff, uh, compressed air into the cabin. It's basically unregulated. And then an outflow side, which which leaks the excess pressure off. And when you hook a pressure cart to the cabin, you're basically testing the, the outflow side. Um, you're replacing the inflow side that would normally come from the engine and so on, you know, with an external compressor. So you're saying it, if that were the problem, then you'd be bypassing that whole troubleshooting. Right. When, when you test it with a pressure cart, you're not testing any of the inflow stuff. 
you're just testing the, 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 the cabin integrity and the outflow valves and so on. So as Paul was pointing out, it really depends a lot on what airplane it is. The twin Cessnas have a very convoluted inflow side with all sorts of flex ducts running through the wings uh, with uh, heat exchangers and the cabin heater, the combustion heater up in the nose is part of the pressurization system. And there, there are a bunch of dump valves that, that are part of the pressurization system. All of this is in the inflow side. And there's just a ton of stuff that can go wrong. Whereas the a P210 has a dead simple inflow system, then there's not very much that can go wrong with it. So in a P210, when there's pressurization problems, it's usually an outflow thing. So it, it's kind of model specific, but uh, but I, I completely agree that with a twin Cessna, 90% of the time, the, the pressurization problem is going to be with the inflow stuff because there's just so many places that it can leak. So why do they go to the cart? That was his question. Is it because they're they're lazy? Because they're just like spring-loaded to do that. Because it's fun? <laughs> well, to, to do the other stuff, you have to start digging. Yeah. And okay. it's like, well, let's we can hook up the cart first and start. Well, I mean, and there the is leaks. a certain amount to be said for the approach that says let's try the easiest stuff first. I mean, that's but certainly in the case of the twin Cessna, it's it's much more likely that the problem's gonna be with the inflow side. And and normal kind of troubleshooting, if it's been a problem coming on slow for a long time versus something that suddenly occurred. That's two very different types of troubleshooting mindsets. Yeah, but those those flexible air ducts can, can chafe through. They're all attached with big stainless steel hose clamps that can come loose. Uh, there's just, and then there's all these dump valves that need to be closed uh, and they need to seal properly. Yeah, those so are really a, fancy hose clamps too. <laughs> so there's just a lot of, lot of places to look. It sounds like their troubleshooting is is just trying to do the quick fix and get you back out the door, you know, and they aren't putting the time into considering the system as a whole and where the problems might be. And Well, I think they're, they're starting with the low cost, let's go look here first. Because a lot of the stuff that Mike's talking about is buried inside wing roots and and things like that. So yeah, in the nose where you have to take it, a bunch of stuff apart yeah. to get at it. I mean, the, the heater is up in the nose of the airplane. And you have to take, there's a lot of panels that have to come out just to get to the thing. So, you know, hooking up the cart first is sometimes the, sometimes the quick way to go. Which yeah. just goes to prove, well, something we've known for a long time, that the people who design these airplanes are never the people who have to work on. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> At one point, I, I had a leaking ram air door, which is also up in the nose that was causing pressurization issues. Uh. And that's right by the heater, as Paul was saying. And my mechanic told me after there, there's a, an O-ring that went bad on it, but my mechanic said, it seems like Cessna built the entire airplane around, around that, that ram air. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I, I've, I've, I've always thought that the up, up in the nose, I've got a 310, but it's, it's a similar situation with a heater up there. That instead of securing that panel with a, a million machine screws, they could have just secured it with Velcro or something. I don't you know. <laughs> it's not like it's structural. It's or not anything. structural. Yeah. yeah, it's not structural. Yeah, boy, that's true. With the dump valves that Mike was mentioning, that there's actually a, a an airborne test that I've run, um, which is kind of interesting and actually helps isolate maybe the inflow side a little bit more. 
and you can take somebody along, but you should take somebody whom you don't like that much because what you're going to do is you're going to pop the rivers. You're going to go up and, pre- and, pre- and pressurize the cab and, and then pull these dump valves one at a time and see if there's a difference in pressure drop-offs. So yeah. um, some yeah, of that can be pretty pretty hard in terms of the depressurization. And, and you know, Toby is making a really good point that's uh, not only about pressurization, but like turbo systems in general. Those things are very hard to test in the hangar and much easier to test up in the air, you know. And we're constantly asking aircraft owners, go try stuff in the air and tell us what happens because it's really hard to diagnose that stuff on the ground. So I'll, I'll tell you, because I'm real good at telling people how not to do things. So here's what you don't <laughs> do. If you don't, if you don't have a pressure cart, you don't go up in a 414A with some guy you found that uh, when vaping was brand new and have, have them light up their, their fake cigarette and think that you're going to follow the smoke oh. because that doesn't happen. It just completely fogs the entire cabin. Nobody can see anything and you don't find any leaks. Somebody did that? <laughs> I, I, no, I no, know Paul, a guy. Paul, that's not, that's not the, the don't procedure. Don't even suggest the that. <laughs> the procedure is that you get a friend with a big Cuban cigar oh, God. and, and oh, then you get God. another friend who will fly close formation with and you and the, see where, where the oh smoke God. is coming that's, out. That's better. <laughs> neither, neither way you're going to be able to breathe real good. I, I just tell you, it's, it's not good air to breathe. Don't, don't and listen by the to way, <laughs> at, those, at those altitudes and that kind of pressure in the cabin, those pipes or whatever those things, the vaping things, I mean, you go through like two packs of them in a heartbeat. It's like, whew, they just go right through. How do you know this, Paul? Yes, that's, I, I, was I know a guy. It, yeah. wasn't, it wasn't me. <laughs> I, I, I'm not the vaping kind of guy, but okay. we found a guy on the airplane that was a big vapor and put him in the airplane. We went up and the, the oh my owner gosh. of the airplane flew it and he started going at it and we had all the smoke and it's like, <laughs> man, we, <laughs> it was a disaster. <laughs> uh, that sight picture. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, no, there was nothing to see. Okay. Yeah, we couldn't right. see each other. We couldn't see out the windows. You were IFR inside the plane. Okay. Inside the plane. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. Again, how not to do something. You're I, I have heard that that troubleshooting procedure, supposed yeah. troubleshooting procedure, and I've heard it with the Cuban cigar like my cat. <laughs> so, yeah. Oh, That's my God. Terrible idea. <laughs> I've not tried it, so I, maybe well, I shouldn't. Yeah, don't do that. Just don't do that. <laughs> Toby, thanks for calling. That was a lot of fun. Yes, yeah. my pleasure. Thank you for having me. I appreciate I, it. I hope the FA wasn't listening. <laughs> yeah, take care. <laughs> well, that's a wrap on another fun podcast. What did we get right? And maybe more importantly, what did we get wrong? We know you have an opinion and we'd love to hear from you. Keep sending us those tricky questions and try to stump us. You can send your questions and comments to podcast at aopa.org. We'll see you. Bye, everybody. <laughs>